Good morning. We are starting a new series today, so I want to encourage you to open your bulletin. The, on the back side will be an outline you can follow along. Uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. You ever seen one of those shows on Dateline or 2020 where they have a hidden camera and they are videoing what goes on behind the scenes? Maybe it's a uh, used car salesman or maybe it's some other smooth-talking salesperson in another arena, but there are men and women who have no problem lying to make the deal. And you can just see them, and they're just telling it one after another, and you watch that poor innocent person just getting taken. It's hard to watch a show like that. You know what I'm talking about? Have you seen anything like that? It's hard to watch a show like that and not become aggravated, just irritated watching all that, maybe even angry at that person. How could they be so callous? No scruples. You know, you want to warn the person who's being taken in about them or, or make sure their boss knows. And if the boss knows too and is okay with that, you want everybody to know about that company. Because we don't like watching that happen. We don't like experiencing that. We don't like seeing somebody else getting taken. The whole thing is enough to make you angry. Well, that may be just a hint of where Jesus is in Matthew chapter 23. You've heard the phrase, practice what you preach. Well, this is where that comes from. And it applies to preachers and it applies to non-preachers. It applies to all of us. But I want to be the first to say it is hard to do. For the last month, we've been talking about our manner of speaking and several of you have commented about how hard these lessons were to hear. You'd even say it's stepped on your toes. Well, I will have you know that if a lesson ever steps on your toes, that lesson crawled up into my lap and slapped me in the face first. Uh, because when you spend time in the Word, at least it is for me, God has a way of doing business. Uh, and it does step on my toes and to go through the text and understand that. And I want to stand before you and say, I don't want to pretend and make you think that I've got all the answers and that I do it all right because I don't. Every day I am convinced more and more any good I can do is because of the Holy Spirit working in me. And when I see those times where I blow it, where I mess up, I need his grace and I need his forgiveness. Practicing what you preach is easier said than done. Well, in Matthew chapter 23, I want you to open your Bibles there because I'm going to have a verse or two on the screen, but really today is an introductory lesson, and I want you to see the whole chapter. Uh, so open your own Bible if you don't mind. If you didn't bring one, there's an extra in the pew, and so you can kind of see how the chapter lays out. It'll really help us with our study today. Matthew chapter 23 happens at the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, this teaching is one of his last. And in this chapter, you're going to see Jesus in a way you don't see him very often. In fact, it may be as you read through this chapter, you're thinking, this is not the Jesus I think of or that I know or that I even like because he comes across angry. He comes across mad and upset. And it's as if he has seen that dishonest salesman and he wants to make sure they get called out. Now, it's always good to study a scripture in context, so I want to do that. So let's kind of go back to what's happening in the context of Matthew chapter 23. This is the last week of his life. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem and he goes to the temple, to the house of God. The problem is it doesn't look like the house of God. It looks like a shopping mecca. It's a mall. It's a business. It's a marketplace. And there's a lot of buying and selling going on. 
This house of prayer has become a place of profit, you might say, really a place of extortion for the poor and the travelers who were there in the city. And Jesus cannot just stand by and let that continue. So Matthew 21, Jesus cleanses the temple. He tells them, you've made it a den of robbers. You might remember that story. He flips the tables. He's upset about this, and he wants them to know this is not the way it's supposed to be. But he does something else by cleansing the temple. He forces the hand of the religious leaders by making this statement, by doing this. See, up to this point, the religious leaders, they continued. They didn't like him, but they just wanted him to go away. They were hoping this whole Jesus movement would just fizzle out because movements would come and go. They'd seen many before and thought they'd seen many after. And so they were hoping that this Jesus thing was kind of on its way out. But Jesus comes into the temple, cleanses the temple, turns the tables, and now he forces their hand. The chapter ends with him going out to Bethany to spend the night. I read through that and I thought, even then the hotels must have been cheaper outside the city. I don't know. But the next day, he returns to Jerusalem, goes back to the temple. He's teaching. Everybody remembers what happened yesterday, especially the religious leaders. And they're not going to let him get by with that. They've been embarrassed by what they've allowed to happen in the temple. And now he's teaching. So in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus escapes their theological traps. They try to take him down. Now, you and I know he's the son of God, and you're not going to win that one. But they're not convinced of that. And so they ask all these questions, thinking they can catch him this way and that way. It does not go well for them. In fact, if you need some entertaining reading this week, read Matthew chapter 22. It's a, a quite insightful chapter. They try to take on Jesus. He's challenged by all their questions, and frankly, it's just embarrassing for them. They set the trap. They ask the question. Every time Jesus answers with the slam dunk. One of those, you might remember, the Pharisee, a lawyer, had heard that as the story goes in the chapter, he had silenced the Sadducees. So he asked the question, what's the greatest command? Thinking again, he's going to trip him up. And Jesus answers, love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wham, slam dunk. Mark's gospel records, after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Not just that the questions ceased, no one dared ask him any more questions. We're going to study Matthew chapter 23 about what happens next. Because what you notice as you read through the text, first Jesus talks about the religious leaders, and then he talks to the religious leaders. Now, we tend to think of Jesus as being mild as being quiet, even being rather conversational as he would talk and and relate with people. And most of the time in Scripture, he is just that. Very likable fella, a very approachable kind of person. And that's what draws people to him. But not in this chapter. This may be a side of Jesus that you don't see very often or don't think of very often. Matthew 23, Jesus calls calls on these religious leaders And again, it's not quiet conversation. He's been witnessing. He knows their deception. He knows how they're tricking people. He knows how those who don't know better are just getting sucked into all of their evil ways. He's seen the abuse. He's seen the tricks. Just cleanse the temple. 
and he has had it. It is like, no more, put the cameras away, you out of here. That's what we've got in Matthew chapter 23. The sermon is sometimes called the seven woes. If you look in your Bible, you may even have a a chapter section or a a paragraph section, and it may even have seven woes in, in part of that title. And that's because that's a refrain that he uses over and over again, seven times. He says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Scathing rebuke. Seven times, he's not warning the spiritual leaders. He's not cautioning them. He's not saying, hey, I need to give you some advice here. Jesus is rebuking them. So when you read it, you need to make sure you read it with that exclamation point. Woe to you. Because that's exactly the way he said it. He's getting in their face. He's thumping them on the chest. He's calling them out. Now, his main problem with the religious leaders is that they were hypocrites. And he uses that word. That's a key word in this. Hypocrites. Seven times in this one chapter, he uses that word. Now, if you've studied that before, you know that word has its history in ancient Greek, in classical theater, where those who were the actors would play multiple parts by wearing multiple masks. So they would just change the mask depending on which part they were playing. And so that's the the background of that term. The idea of using a mask. But over time, the meaning of that word changed. Now, when we hear the word, we tend to think phony, fake, a fraud, a con artist. And that's exactly what Jesus is accusing them of, of being hypocrites. They're pretenders. These, they're religious leaders, but they're not really leading at all. Now, Merriam-Webster says a hypocrite is feigning to be what one is not. And that's what Jesus is calling them out for. That's what he's saying. You're wearing these masks. You're trying to fool these people. You are fooling some of them, but not all of them. It's a big, fat lie. That's what he's saying here. It's like even today, when you put on that super mom mask, trying to pretend like you do a great job and you know you don't, or you put on that super spiritual mask, so that people will think that you are more spiritual than you are. That's what he's talking about here. Hypocrisy is this. I want to make sure you maybe write this down. It's an act of pretending. It's really just pretending. Now, that being said, I want to clarify here. That's not the same as acting better than you feel. Paul Harvey would say that's a great way to live life is to act better than you feel. Being a hypocrite is not being nice to people when you don't feel like it. That's not hypocrisy. Sometimes we try to excuse ourselves from being rude or blunt or out of place when we say, well, I'm not feeling it. And if I'm not feeling it, then that's just being hypocritical. I'm just being real. I don't want to be fake. No, that's not being real. That's not having self-control. That's acting like a child not an adult. Self-control, patience, grace is what what propels people to, to be kind when you feel like being rude, to turn the other cheek when you feel like striking back, to love your enemy instead of choosing hateful wrong actions or even words toward them. And all of that is real. That's not fake. That is real. That is real obedience. 
That is real discipleship. That is real love. There is nothing false about that. Hypocrisy is when you are attempting to deceive people. When your whole goal is you're pretending, you're playing a part, you're manipulating them, you're trying to get your way. It's really just adult-sized pretending. Now, pretending if you're a child is a good thing. All of us as children, our children, we love when they, they do the pretending, they like to play dress up, pretend what they're going to be when they grow up, a princess, a king, a cowboy, an Indian, a teacher, pro ball player. Pretending is great when you're a child. But I'm not convinced that we really ever grow out of it. Sometimes we go from playing pretend to becoming a professional pretender. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Look at the way the sermon opens up. Uh, you can look at your Bibles. This is also on the screen. Matthew 23, 1 through 3. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. That's the ESV. The NIV says they do not practice what they preach. They look good. They got some really good information. Sounds right, but it's a fake. It's phony. That's what he's talking about here. So more of the context here. Who's he talking to? Who are these people? Who were these religious leaders? Who were the Sadducees? Who were the Pharisees? Let me see if I can explain it like this. The Sanhedrin in that day, you've heard that name. Maybe you studied this before. That was a group of 71 men who were this governing body. Think of maybe a parallel to us would be like the Senate, okay? And so they were the ruling body of that day and time. And they had two parties, very much like we understand, uh, Democrats and Republicans. The Sadducees were very liberal in their interpretation of Scripture. The Pharisees were very narrow, very conservative in their interpretation of Scripture. One author I was reading said this, now the big difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, between the today's Republicans and Democrats, is that Republicans and Democrats today get along a lot better than the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. So does that kind of help us to see what's going on here? Theologically, they were constantly butting heads. They were not friends. They did not get along. But they had one thing they really agreed with. This Jesus guy has got to go. He was an enemy to both of them. He was a threat to both of them. Something had to be done. So they agreed to team up on them. That's what's happening in Matthew chapter 22. Now, a couple of things I want you to know about these two groups. A little background. The Sadducees, whenever you're reading your Bible about chief priests and elders, think Sadducees there. More than likely, that's who they're talking about because the Sadducee was able to be a Sadducee because they were born into that position. It was uh, a part of their Jewish aristocracy. Their influence was mainly through the high priests. So again, when you think about the, the priests in that regard, now, there were other requirements, of course, they had to meet, but you could not be a Sadducee if it's not in your bloodline. So that was a part, it was a family thing. It was a part of your heritage. You were born into it. Now, the Sadducees were strong in their commitment to the Torah, the written law, the first five books of the Old Testament, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. One reason, because you don't read about the resurrection 
in those first five books. So those are the ones. Do you remember the time when the Sadducees questioned Jesus about the woman who was married to a man, and then he died, and then married her brother, then he died? Remember that? Married to seven brothers, and they asked the question, well, in the resurrection, then whose wife is she going to be? The whole reason for answering that question is because they're trying to make the resurrection sound ridiculous. Everybody who heard that question would have known that in that day and time. You and I reading it might not pick up on that. The Sadducees had a high regard to the written law. Uh, the Pharisees, however, were, could be from any background. Didn't have to be born into it necessarily. It had to be a Jew, of course, but, but not necessarily in that bloodline. But you had to be willing to work. You had to be willing to study. According to Josephus, the Pharisees were the most influential with the people. Probably why we read about Jesus addressing the Pharisees more, because he realized the people were listening to them more. First century, they numbered about 6,000. Now, the Sadducees had a, a high regard for the written law, but the Pharisees had an equal standing of the, of the written law and the oral law. That's why oftentimes Jesus would talk about your traditions, because they held those equally. Both had importance. Now, here's what I'm thinking about this this week and thinking, that, seeing myself, times where I've been the hypocrite, I've been the pretender, others I know as well. I think it would be safe to say most of us have been either like a Sadducee or like a Pharisee. Sometimes they're like a Sadducee because they're pretenders. They see their faith as something they were born into. It's a family thing. It's kind of part of their bloodline. So the mask they wear was kind of handed down to them from their parents who got it from their grandparents. And since you were just a little child all along, you were taught how to play the part. So you kind of grow up in this. This is how Christians act. This is how Christians sing. This is what Christians do. This is what Christians don't do. It's just a part of your upbringing, but it was never your choice. Sort of a part of your family. It's just kind of what we do. Now, you're good at it. You got it down pat. You know a lot about it, but it was never really your choice. That's the Sadducees. A few years ago, People Magazine had a cover story about Andre Agassi. You might remember him. I put his picture on the screen. The article was called My Secret Life. Nothing really racy. You can get online. You can read the whole article. You might remember him. Top tennis player for years. Very successful. Turned pro at age 16. Eight grand slams over 20 years. But here was the secret. This is what he was sharing. This amazing tennis star doesn't like tennis. Never did, never has, hated it for most of his growing up years. He said this, my dad decided before I was born that I would be the number one player in the world. His words, I hate tennis. I hate it with all my heart. And I still, I kept playing because I have no choice. I kept begging myself to stop. I keep playing and this gap, this contradiction between what I want to do and what I actually do feels like the core of my life. He shared about a practice session with his dad when he was seven. Seven. My arm feels like it's going to fall off. I want to ask, how much longer, pops? No answer. I get an idea. Accidentally on purpose, I hit a ball high over the fence. 
I catch it on the rim of the racket, so it sounds like a misfire. My father sees the ball leave the court. He curses, but he heard the ball hit wood, so he knows it was an accident. He stomps out of the yard. I now have four and a half minutes to catch my breath. Seven years old. Maybe the most telling sentence in the article is this. I never chose this life. I never chose this life. If you look at me on the outside, he's, he's very good, very successful, really good at it, but he never chose it, never had a heart for it. He doesn't love it. And that may describe some Christians. I wonder if that describes you sometimes. From all appearances, it looks like you've got this Christian thing down pat. You are good at it. You know how to act. You know what to say. You know what to do. You can repeat the prayers. You can sing the songs. But you never chose it. It's always been part of the family. It's always been what you've done. And as long as you remember, you've always put on that mask. In fact, you've had it so long, you may not even realize that you're putting on the mask. But if that's you, in Matthew 23, there may be some words you need to hear. Woe to you if you think your mom and dad's faith is good enough to save you. Woe to you if you think going to church makes you a Christian. Woe to you if you think going to a Christian school makes you a Christian. Woe to you if you are only here because it's your family's tradition or your school's expectations or your friends expected of you. Woe to you, Jesus would say. That's just pretending. Or it may be that some of us can relate to the Pharisees. I've thought about this, and sometimes I feel like I, I fit into both. Maybe you as well. The Pharisees, these pretenders, would see their faith as knowing all the right answers and doing all the right things. That's what mattered. So Jesus spent more time talking with the Pharisees, and we'll see that in the next couple of weeks because the Pharisees, to them, they came up with a checklist. They had the written law and then the oral law, and that part of that oral law was their own checklist, things they needed to know, things they needed to do. And that's how they determined, if they checked all their boxes, that they were okay with God. The problem, though, is even if they were saying the right things, if they knew all the right answers, it wasn't who they were. It was just what they pretended to be. So Jesus would say they don't practice what they preach. He's not saying they're, they're, they're doing the wrong things. He's not saying that they don't know the rules. He's saying it's not real. It's not a reflection of who they are. They may be an all-star tennis player, but they don't love the game. It's just something they're pretending. They're just trying to make a sale. See and I ate at the Olive Garden this week. We love the Olive Garden. But for us, it's more of a treat, so we've not been there in a while. One of her students at school gave her a gift card for Christmas. So we went, and I was studying the menu, and there's a couple of things that look new to me. Maybe they've been there a while. but So I kind of narrowed it down to two, and I asked the waiter which one he recommended. It was hard for me, but he said this one, and I ordered this one, and it was good, and I was glad I, I took his advice. I share that because if any of you want to give me a gift card, I could go back and order the other one, and I'll tell you if it was good or not. But he gave me good advice. 
But I've been there. You have too when you ask a waiter about something. Or maybe you don't even ask and they come in and go, here's our special of the day. Have you been there? And they start going on about the seasonings and how it's prepared. And they got this, you know, it came straight from the Gulf and this, this. And here's how it's cut. And it's cooked this way. And the chef makes it great. And you're like, man, that sounds good. And you ask them, well, have you had it? No. Are you likely to choose that one? Maybe a great sales line, and everything they say might be true. But you kind of want somebody to say, order this. You're going to love it. It's fantastic. Otherwise, it's just a sales job. Jesus is not interested in you just knowing a script. Following Jesus is not just about having all the right answers or even just doing all the right things. Jesus wants your heart. It's got to start there. A few chapters earlier, Matthew records another statement Jesus made to the Pharisees. I put this on the screen, Matthew 15, 7 through 9. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Folks, if you find yourself in that situation, the message of Matthew 23 is, woe to you, woe to you. If you know all about me, but you don't know me, that's what Jesus is saying. If you're doing all these things, but you're not doing them out of love, even if you give a lot of your time and your talent and your money, if you're not doing it out of love, that's what Romans 13 is about, 1 Corinthians 13, you're just a pretender. You're just a pretender. A lot of people... They don't like Matthew chapter 23. It's not the kind of passage when you're thinking, ooh, I think I'm going to end the day with the Lord. What could I read? Because it's hard to read the chapter. And you see why. Jesus is really up front. He's in your face. He's blunt. In fact, you may even read through this and go, this doesn't sound like Jesus. Are we sure this is supposed to be in the Bible? Because he sounds mean. even sounds angry. Doesn't sound very loving. I think about it like this. Parents, you ever had one of those situations when maybe your young child is, is just learning to ride a bike or maybe one of those toys and they're in the driveway and, and they're playing around on the driveway that goes down to the street and you see your little child get on that toy or that bike and they're headed straight for the street. They don't see the car coming, but you see the car coming and you've just got a matter of seconds, you know physically you can't get there to stop the child, and you see the car coming, you see the child going, and so you just say their name, stop! And your little one doesn't know what he's done wrong, doesn't know what she's done wrong, they stop and they turn around with their eyes full of tears because they've been rebuked. The neighbors might even hear you and wonder, why are you being so loud? What's that poor child done wrong? you love that child and you know that's what you've got to do to get them to stop so that they don't go and hurt themselves that's what Jesus is doing here you might feel like you're chastised but it's not so much he loves you so much he's going to get in your face and say woe to you if you've just been putting on a mask if you've just been doing what your mom and dad said 
what your school says, what your friends expect, and it's not down here. That's where Jesus is in Matthew 23. He knows. He's down to a matter of days. When he entered Jerusalem, he set his face to Jerusalem. He knows it's time. And he's desperately trying to get the attention of those who would follow him to know that it's not about the outward devotion. It's not about memorizing facts and being able to spit them out at the right time. But somehow they just can't see it. That's another word you're going to see as we study through this. The word blind. I think it was five times he used the word blind because they can't see it. They're so used to just putting the mask on, so quick to say the right words. Look at me as I do everything right. And they can't see the hypocrisy. They're blind. And so Jesus is saying, stop. This is not a game that we're playing. Tommy Hempel used to say a phrase, and I've shared this with you before. I've never forgotten it, though. And I think it comes from his love of people. I think that's why he chose to be a firefighter. I believe that's why, as he grew in the Lord, he became uh, selected to, to be an elder in this church because he loves people, had a concern for people. And Tommy, sometimes we would talk about things, and he would use, and here's the phrase, the walking wounded. Do you ever hear Tommy say that word, the walking wounded? And he was talking about you and me, and he would say, if we could see their pain, there would be blood all over these pews. And he's right. Because he can see that at work. And he can see that at church. That we can show up, and we can dress the part, and we can look, and we can say all that. Fine, good. And down deep, the blood is just gushing, gushing out. Jesus knows who we are. He knows your faults. He knows your doubts. He knows your sins. But we spend so much energy trying to cover those up, making sure no one sees. We can put on the mask. But Jesus sees it all. Jesus knows there is blood all over these pews. Now, you can fool some people, maybe even most of the people, but not all the people are fooled. And what Jesus is trying to do is to get people to see what's on the inside. So maybe the lesson of Matthew 23 as we get into this, just be honest, be real. What do you really believe? I know what mom and dad said. I know what my grandparents said. I know what they say at church. What do I believe? Quit gauging yourself on what other people see or think. Quit gauging yourself on some set of rules to keep. What is your relationship with Jesus like? If Jesus came back today to claim his own, would you be the one that first say, I am here, I am ready? Because your relationship is just that. Would that, be, would that include you? Do you know him? Or maybe better ask, does he know you? Or have you just been pretending? I don't want to catch you off guard with this. And I don't want to surprise you, but one last blank. There are pretenders among us. Now, don't look. They might be sitting to your left or to your right. Men, women, young, old. In fact, I've got it on good authority. Sometimes they make their way up to this stage. They're putting on a performance. They've learned to wear the mask. So you think they're perfect parents. 
They wear the mask, and they think you've got the best marriage. No, they don't. It's not perfect. Not near. That's the truth. But we pretend like we do, and they put on this performance. The reality is, and kids know this, just before coming in the door, mom and dad were talking ugly to each other, and maybe to them as well. Some of us in this room might be here because of family pressure. It's not your choice, really. You just kind of do it. We're pretending. Pretenders were seeing amazing grace with tear-filled eyes and then refused to extend that same grace to their family member who hurt them. Pretenders have become experts at separating their faith from their political views or their money management or their entertainment preferences. Pretenders will spend an hour and a half getting themselves ready for the day, making sure everything is just right in the way they look, spending the time and money to buy all the clothes, hours exercising to keep in shape, but can't seem to find 10 minutes for the Word of God and to pray to their Lord. These pretenders are so quick to point out and condemn the sexual immorality in our culture, but they're not so concerned about their own lust. They're quick to condemn the materialism of their friends, their neighbors, but they're blind to their own jealousy, their own greed. There are pretenders among us. Sometimes that's you. Sometimes that's me. James wrote, the opposite of pretending is confession. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to one another, and you will be healed. That's the word he uses, healed. But that's not easy to do. Here's a test to know if you're still pretending. If no one knows who you really are. There's not one person who knows who you really are. A few months ago, we studied Luke 7. You remember that story? Jesus invited to the Pharisee's house. He was so preoccupied, wearing the mask, he didn't extend the common courtesy to his guest. But the prostitute comes in, no mask to wear, no pretending. Everybody knows who she is. Breaks that expensive joy, uh, jar of perfume and washes his feet. No pretending, no hypocrisy, no facade. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There is no peace in pretending. There is no peace in hypocrisy. And there's no forgiveness either. One last verse, Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. He won't. It's time to stop pretending. It's time to put away the mask. We're going to sing a song of invitation to encourage you. It's to get real with God. He knows everything anyway. So just come clean and confess. Whatever that is, whatever you need to make sure that when he comes, you're ready to go and that you can be real. Because I guarantee you, this is not a church of people who are perfect. We all have our faults, our doubts, our sins. But we've got to help each other and love each other, constantly lifting up Jesus. 
If you're ready to follow Grace's example and be baptized, we always have the water ready. Once you come, let's stand and sing.